one the purification of heart and mind which contained our calm and tranquility meditation steps which have an automatic purification system built in meditative absorptions and then the next one the purification of our views which concerns the meditative investigation and contemplation on the five aggregates and also on cause and effect and their inherent emptiness rather than their inherent belonging to us and then the purification of overcoming doubt which was concerned with seeing the three characteristics of existence in particularly of course ourselves but also around us so if we've done all that and actually have accomplished all of that we should be very well advanced on this path but no matter what we have done each step of it will give us a larger view and less turbulence within the more of that we can see whether it is through the tranquility or through the inside either way or hopefully both it should smooth out some of our worries and fears which are always based on the view of our personality which needs to be protected and we find that of course not only difficult but impossible in the end the next two steps on this purification path are called purification of knowledge of what is the path and what is not the path and the next one after that is called the purification of knowledge and vision of what is the path these are the words the buddha used however as far as the details of that is concerned he did not really elaborate <coughs> these are the words that Sariputta used when he asked the Venerable Punya and no elaboration at all just those sentences however the Buddha's greatest commentator the Venerable Buddha Gosa of the 5th century elaborated and com give commentary on it which has been put together from diverse utterances of the Buddha on these particular subjects so the reason I'm explaining that is if you were ever to read this particular discourse you wouldn't find any of the details that you have heard here and probably partially even remembered in the particular discourse only the sentences are there 
However, at other times, the Buddha gave some indication of what is and what is not the path. Now, the one aspect of what is not the path is often misunderstood, gravely misunderstood, to the detriment of the practitioner, because if we don't really know what is not the path, we won't know what is the path either. The two go together. Some of the Buddha's words on that subject are that if we actually are able to have states of tranquility which are described in the meditative absorption and then use these powers of the mind, for the wrong purpose, then we're not on the path. Now, the wrong purpose would be what we call supernatural powers, which are available if one puts one's mind to it. But it's a waste of time. One can manifest material things out of nothing. Walk on water, walk through walls. Change one's appearance. Be in another place without traveling there. Many powers can arise. They should not be used until one has become enlightened. At that time, they may be of great help to other people. So if we get into meditative absorptions to the point of having real mental power, then that mental power has to be used for insight. And that insight will then bring us eventual freedom, liberation, access to the non-born, unborn, undying, where nothing exists except mind and body which can be used for the benefit of others. If we use them before that, we may be using them for our own benefit and sidetracking our path to the extent of not being able to get back on it. It's very common in India. There are many stories to this day where very highly developed people use these powers for the attraction of disciples. And this is the reason why not to use them. Obviously, it's not up to us to discern whether that person is already fully enlightened or not, but the Buddha's instructions are quite clear. Another instruction which is given is not to discuss one's meditation abilities or even disabilities with other people to make it common knowledge, particularly the abilities, of course. The disabilities, well, everybody has them, so it's common knowledge anyway. But the abilities, not to discuss them with just anybody, only with one's teacher. 
other people, first of all, can be envious, but that's not the main point. The main point is that we do this, or could be doing it, for the enhancement of the ego. Look at me, I can do fourth jhana. That type of thing. So, not to discuss like that, but only with the teacher, which also applies to deep inside states, which should be reserved for the discussion with the teacher. Particularly, um, this was an injunction to monks and nuns who were not to tell this to lay people who might have been their followers or disciples because of the reason of attracting more disciples and being esteemed by them. The monks and nuns were only to discuss this with their teacher, in most cases the Buddha, but it applies to everyone. Now these are two things which are not the path. Another thing which is mentioned in the commentaries and actually cannot be found by the Buddha in the Buddha's words themselves but are possibly inferred is the fact that when we come to this point after having done these other four purifications and possibly having been successful with them that we may think of ourselves as being so far advanced that we can tell anybody anything and that of course again we have this ego support system of which we are never entirely free until we are fully enlightened. So it's always a danger point. And it's particularly a danger point when we have already tasted some of the truth in insight, some of the tranquility in the absorptions, and obviously have come ahead of other people which we meet and think, oh, these poor chaps, they don't know anything. So, with that, then, we may be tempted to give out and not do it for the right reason. If it's done for the right reason. The right reason simply being to give some help, to give some uh, support system to someone who is in, has problems, and we can see that the meditative path may be helpful to them, that is a good thing to do. So the line between the two is so fine that it takes constant self-examination, whether one is trying to tell others for the simple reason that one needs that as an ego support, that one knows more than somebody else, or whether one is doing it in order to help. There's a very um, definite test we can make. If we do it for our own support system, we are attached to the result. Are they going to like me? Are they going to agree with me? Are they going to be successful? Are they going to continue coming to me? Are they um, uh, really understanding me? All these are the personal support system. But if it's given out for the sake of being given out and whatever is being done by the other person is understood to be the other person's karma and their resultants, 
and one feels totally detached from the result, then it's done for the sake of being helpful. This is a test we can make. And that test shows one in one's attitude as one does this, namely that there is no burning out. Anyone who is attached to resultants eventually burns out and has to stop and has to regenerate somehow or other. If the person doesn't burn out, they, at least their mental capacity, and I don't mean that they become um, not uh, normal, but their mental capacity to do this very difficult task deteriorates. It doesn't stay on the same level where it can grow. That comes strictly from that one reason, from being attached to the resultant. Because the minute one does anything, anything at all, and just does it for doing sake, there is no hardship, no strain, no stress. It's just being done. And as it is done, it's finished. One does it to one's own best capacity, best ability, but that's it, finished. Now, if one does it, however, and waits for somebody to say that's wonderful, that really was the best, that's excellent, and I agree with it, and I love you for it, and all the rest of it, then there is no end to it. It has the attachment and the clinging which goes out and binds one to someone or something else. And then eventually, because one will never get full agreement, even the Buddha didn't, certainly Jesus didn't, so why should we get it? Then there will be elation and depression, which belongs to those eight worldly dhammas called praise and blame and loss and gain. And as long as we're attached to them, our giving out of that what we may have learned and experienced and known becomes detrimental to our own development. These points, which are not the past, have often been called by others and by the commentators the corruptions of insight. These are not words of the Buddha. He probably didn't expect anybody to have corruptions of insight. But they can be well called that because they corrupt us into the same states of egocentricity and self-serving that we're trying to get rid of through this path. So this is an important aspect when our meditation has been already of long standing, as some of you have been doing it for quite a long time, and has already developed to a very um, good state, has been, so to say, successful, and insights have also arisen. So we really need that self-examination, and it is of great benefit to oneself. That the students or whoever listens to one, or the friends whom one talks to, also benefit from that kind of attitude is automatic but it is not the reason for that examination. 
The examination is for seeing that oneself remains on the path, on the path towards enlightenment. The whole of the Buddha's teaching has only one purpose and one goal, and that's enlightenment. Everything else is by the way, and it arises by the way, and that is nice, and then we can be grateful for it. There arise more peaceful states, more harmony, more lovingness, more compassion. We can be grateful for that, but we must remember, and that is really a must, what, why we are doing this. Doing it for one reason only, to become liberated. And a liberated being has enormous influence. There are four imponderables, which the Buddha talked about. These are the Buddha's words. Four things which we cannot ponder or should not ponder because we can't come to any result. There's no way we can understand it. And these four are the intricacies of karma. He compared the intricacy of karma with a spider's web. The threads of a spider's web, if you ever have looked at it, they're very beautiful, are so interwoven that we cannot find beginning or end of this web. That's karma. We can sometimes see something in our lives which is not too long ago, which seems to have um, quite a grave result, either positive or negative, but usually it's all so interwoven we can't really say where this or that comes from. And it is not useful to ponder. The Buddha said it will only confuse our minds more than they are already confused. The second one that we need not ponder is the beginning of the universe. The beginning of the universe, which nobody's agreed on so far, and he said nobody ever will. It's not a point to ponder. And the other two are the influence of a Buddha, or even a totally enlightened one, and the influence of a person in jhana. Not to ponder. It's something that we cannot really ascertain, but obviously it's there. So if we use that, any kind of our abilities for self-serving, we may even lose the ability. But we certainly don't stay on the path. It is often described and explained in the words that we should not be elated about these states. It's very difficult not to be joyful when the meditation becomes very nice and tranquil. But what it really means is that we must remember that that's not why we're meditating. That's only the means. It's not the end. Now the means have to be skillful, obviously, and these are skillful means. Upaya in Pali. Skillful means. And skillful means are very important in everything, in our daily lives. Skillful means are important in this practice path. And the tranquility is a skillful means. There's another thing that we could, at this point, discuss about skillful means. It's a very important part 
of the practice also. And while it does not directly concern meditation, it certainly directly concerns purification. Mindfulness, which is really the one mental formation without which we can't do anything, is very often co-joined in the Buddha's words with clear comprehension. In Pali, Sati Sampanyanya, the two are mentioned together and they belong together like a pair. And it's very helpful to us to know their distinction. Mindfulness is knowing only. No judgment, no discrimination, it just is. Knowing what's going on. It is a very pure state of mind because it doesn't have any kind of mind convolution, elaboration, proliferation about it. It just has the plain seeing of what's going on. And ideally, it should not even be able to say good or bad. It just sees. But in order to be able to discriminate, we need clear comprehension. And that is something that we can practice in order to bring it to fruition because most people find that difficult. And the Buddha gave exact instructions how to do it. And if we use those exact instructions, we will be much better off than without ever paying attention to that. Now, obviously, all of us have some discrimination. However, it's quite clear that everyone gets confused at some stage. What's the right thing to do? What's the good thing to do? What will be really helpful for me or what will not? When we make a mistake, we get the immediate resultance. We get upset and unhappy. If we've done it well, we feel this is working. So there are four steps which we can take before saying or doing anything. Of course, it slows us down, which is fine. Everything is far too fast. I'm sure if we were supposed to be able to move at 120 miles per hour or at 3,000 miles per hour, we would have had that inbuilt in this body. I'm sure it isn't very helpful to us. Although we all do it, we can really, in our mind processes, slow down to great advantage. Because it will diminish our impulsive reactions. The impulsive reactions are the ones that have not been used with mindfulness and are created out of greed and hate. The impulses that we have are unfortunately usually based upon those two roots which we are, with which we run to problems. So clear comprehension is used in this way. Before we say or do anything, we check out what the purpose is. What's my purpose? Now that may take a while 
to find out what's the purpose. And if it takes a while, it already becomes clear that the purpose wasn't clear-cut. There were two sides to the story and maybe even conflicting sides to the story. So when we have ascertained that the purpose is definitely wholesome and beneficial and profitable, and profitable is the word that the Buddha uses, not in a material sense. Then the next step is whether the means I intend to employ are really skillful. Whether I'm using the best possible means to accomplish that purpose. Now again, that may take a while because in speech and in action, many possibilities exist. And the more we have to ponder it, the more we may come up with very skillful means. Sometimes we might have to make notes. That's fine. Everything that is helpful towards purification is useful to do. Now the third one, the third step, is extremely important. And without it, it cannot work properly. But that's the most difficult one. Is the purpose and are the means within the Dhamma, within the teaching of the Buddha, or within spirituality. The difficulty arises because most people can't remember what the Buddha said. And that's where learning by heart comes in. As we learn it by heart, which is sometimes done through chanting, which is very automatic, or through studying this, the discourses and then learning that which we find particularly important by heart, such as the five hindrances, or the four noble truths, or the five aggregates, or, or the four foundations of mindfulness, or whatever it is that we can remember, then we can check out whether that what we have in mind to say or do is really within that teaching. But if we want to make it a little easier for ourselves. We can find out whether it is beneficial to ourselves and others, which would most likely cover most of the instructions of the Buddha. Because you see, what could happen is this, at a very extreme angle. A person might decide that the, the banks are loaded with money, but he himself hasn't got any. So he has the purpose of breaking into the vault and getting some of that surplus money out so that he has a little better situation. And he thinks that this purpose is quite justifiable. This is extreme, but we all think sometimes that our purposes are justifiable even though they may not be within the Dhamma. So then, of course, he has to get the most skillful means. So he gets everything ready. He's got all the right tools. He knows exactly what to do with the burglar alarm. And he knows exactly how to handle this business of getting into the vault. He's got all the skillful means on hand. So he has already complied with the first two. 
the purpose is justifiable and the means are on hand. And then the third one, is it within the Dhamma? Now, obviously, our safe breaker will not know the Dhamma. So, and he may have already given up his conscience. So, he may go ahead with this uh, very uh, uh, useless deed. But, if it was us, we would know. And we would check out against wholesome and unwholesome, beneficial and not beneficial to us and others. Now, sometimes, we may find that things are beneficial to ourselves, we think anyway, but not to others. Desist. It doesn't work. It never does. There's always obstruction. There's always something that just doesn't come out right. And usually we think, well, that other person is terrible, or I didn't do it well enough. But that's not right. That's not true. What's really true is, that it wasn't beneficial to the other person. So having done all three and come up with, yes, this is the way it is, it's fine, then we go ahead. And having gone ahead and done it, or said it, then we check, did I accomplish the purpose? And if not, why not? And we were so honest to ourselves, we will find not only were the means not skillful enough, but one didn't take the benefit of others into enough consideration. So very often out of ignorance, which is our birthright, we're born with it. Because we didn't know exactly what the other person was considering their benefit. There's no blame attached to this. All that this provides is a learning situation which we might use the next time. So we have four very distinct steps on clear comprehension, which is enormously helpful and should accompany mindfulness. Mindfulness, which is the heart of Buddhist meditation, which is the first step in the seven factors of enlightenment, without which, the Buddha said, there is no way to purify, because we won't know what to purify because we can't recognize it's our recognition and as we use that we also become acquainted with skillful means and we can see that what we're doing in our meditation practice are skillful means because they bring us a widening of heart and mind they bring an expansion of heart and mind. And if they're not skillful, they won't. So, it's easy to check that if we have introspection. And no matter what we do in meditation, it needs to bring that expansion. Expansion of view and expansion of heart. So that we can see we're doing the right thing by the right skillful means. If we have the attitude that our tranquil meditation, our skillful means and nothing else, we will never be in danger to use them for anything else. Naturally, the powers only arise when the meditative absorptions have become perfected 
when one has become what is called master of the jhanas. It's not that difficult, really. And once having started on it. Then the powers are there. And the powers of the mind are that what we use for insight, for gaining more and more access to an absolute truth and an absolute understanding, rather the relative one, which can be called rather instead of an individual understanding, a universal understanding, the same thing. And as we see absolute universality, we can let go of relative individuality. And that's the pathway. So what is not the path always concerns self-serving. And introspection and mindfulness will help us. It's sometimes said that delight in the path is a corruption of insight. That's not true. The Buddha said in the transcendental dependent arising that joy is an absolute condition necessary for meditation. Joy arises in meditation, but we have to have it in order to meditate. So delight and joy are not that much apart. We should enjoy this part. We should enjoy every moment of it, even when the knees hurt, because of the mental condition which is uplifting, because of that intelligent understanding that here is something that can actually transcend the difficulties which exist in all human existence. That joy can bring the buoyancy and strength of mind which will overcome the obstacles on any spiritual path. And it will also have a great deal to do with overcoming the obstacle of sloth and torpor. The Buddha compared that practice that we should do with trying to make a fire with fire sticks. Now in his time there were no matches or lighters. There were fire sticks and you've got to rub them against each other continuously in order to get a fire. If you rub them for a moment and then stop and another moment and stop and another moment, you don't get a fire. All you get is rubbing and that can become quite irritating. And that's what this practice is all about. Rubbing the fire sticks continuously until they're fire. Continuous practice. So joy in the practice is a necessary ingredient for that because it's highly unlikely that one sits and continues if one doesn't really have an inner relationship to it which is positive. It may not be an overwhelming elation. In fact, it shouldn't be. It should be a warm inner feeling of this is the right thing to do. This is good. This is better than what I'm doing outside in the world. That doesn't mean that we have to stop that. We can't. Having this body, which is material, 
corporality, we have to deal with the material world. There's no way out. And we need to deal with the material world as skillfully as we can. It takes a great deal of skill to deal with the material world. And we should never confuse the two, material world and the mental world. The material world is strictly an outcome of our <coughs> mental world. Our surroundings show for sure what's going on in our minds. So we have the necessity to deal with the material world because of this material body which we are trying to keep alive as long as it wants to stay alive. And there's no way we can get out of that. But it becomes far easier to be skillful if our mental world has become skillful. This inner conviction that the right thing is being done is a necessary ingredient of the path. Without that ingredient, we're going to fall off the practice. We're not going to keep on rubbing the fire sticks. The inner conviction. This is real. This is right. Naturally, we get sidetracked. There's too much going on out there. Diminish it. Do less out there. Have time for practice. One needs to examine one's priorities again and again, if they interrupt one's spiritual progression, they're not priorities anymore. Drop them. As I said, the body has to stay alive. That's absolute priority. Cannot change that. Must be done. But how to do it, that's a way of one's own determination. One of the things which the Buddha mentioned as a quality which works against loving-kindness in one's heart and against spiritual progression is to be involved in too much hustle and bustle. It can be found in the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the discourse on loving-kindness. And we need to examine that. In this world of ours, and particularly this um, society that we live in here, this is an ever ever-present danger. And if one sees it, one can remove oneself from that ever-present danger. Now we need to know what is the path. We know what's not the path. And the purification of that knowledge of what is not the path helps us, of course, to recognize what is the path. And it is called this knowledge and vision of what is the path. Now these two words are important and they are not that perfectly translated in English to give the understanding of them because we just don't seem to have the exact words for that. The English language has many advantages but sometimes it's also disadvantaged because it does not deal with too many esoteric points or points which transcend our daily world. What it means is that it's that inner realization, which is the vision, 
and the understanding of that. So an inner realization of the past and the understanding of the past. So what we're looking at here is really an intelligent appraisal, which is our own. The Buddha often said many times that all he's doing is giving guidelines. That's all. He's just showing the way. Whether we're going to go along that way or not, it's entirely up to us. And sometimes, particularly in the beginning, we don't know whether this is the right way. But if we have already practiced the way I've outlined here in the past uh, days, we have already found that some of those things he said are correct because we've been able to prove them ourselves and that's the only proof that matters and having done that we may have overcome doubt we may have gained confidence and then we have to have enough confidence to sometimes just go ahead without having personal knowledge of the next step but only finding out after having taken it. It's a little bit like learning to swim. If we don't go into the water and do the strokes, we'll never learn it. But in the beginning, we're afraid we're going to drown because we didn't know yet that the water is going to carry us. And as we learn anything, we have to have that little bit of confidence. Or maybe like getting married. We don't know what's going to happen. We think it's all right, but we're going to have to find out ourselves. So we do many things in our lives which we have no personal experience yet. And yet we go ahead because we think it's okay. We have confidence in it. Sometimes the confidence is obviously misplaced. So we learn from our mistakes. That's all we can do. But to hold back and not do it is even worse because then we don't even learn from our mistakes. We're just sitting tight and not expanding. On this pathway, when we have examined with introspection these different aspects of ourselves and have not had the ability yet to get into the meditative absorption, one of the factors which arises is fear. The meditative absorptions are counteracting that. Fear does not arise because of the fact that the mind is at ease. A mind which is at ease cannot have fear. However, if we go through the examination, the introspection, and the meditative investigation and contemplation of that which, of which we are constituted, the five aggregates, cause and effect, the impermanence, all the factors which I have described. It's very possible, highly likely, that fear arises. It's one of the steps on this way. And that fear can, of course, block one completely from going forward. It can be a mild rejection, which says, you know, 
I like things the way they are. I don't want to know about this. And that is even worse because it's not strong enough to make one take notice. One can justify that kind of reaction easily. We justify it with, um, well, what about my husband or my wife and what about my kids and my job and all the rest of it. None of that has anything to do with it, really. But these are the justifications and others. But fear can be much stronger than that. It can be an inner feeling of real panic. It can be an inner feeling of real um, trying to run away, restlessness. It can be so strong that one feels that the meditation has done something bad to one rather than good. Now at that time, one needs someone, such as a teacher, who can give the necessary uh, explanation and consolation that this is just a step on the way and just needs to be experienced and dropped. It has sometimes the same problem that we are facing, the annihilation, but we give them different names, fear of a particular person, fear of a particular situation, a fear of the future, and so on. When these old fears surface, they become so uh, predominant that we don't see that it is actually the fear of seeing the truth about ourselves, that there's really nobody there, that it's all phenomena. And we become so strong that we, of course, are tempted to think that they are the ones that we have to deal with. We don't really. We don't have to deal with those fears. They are just part and parcel of our total makeup of being afraid not to be here. The annihilation of the body or the annihilation of the self. That's what their basic makeup is. So what we really need to deal with at that time is the fear of seeing the truth that there is nobody there to be annihilated because there was nobody there in the first place. Without a calm and joyous mind, without that tranquility base which we get through the um, practice of the absorptions and through the practice of loving-kindness, this is sometimes difficult to swallow. The reaction in the mind often is, what, I've been tr what have I been doing all this time, trying to get all these things and trying to know all these things, and I don't really want to believe that there's nobody there. That re rejection and resistance can be strong enough to last a while and can again and again surface with fear. It needs to be understood and explained over and over again so that we can eventually let go and keep going. The fear can also manifest in what we are pleased to call an hell ex a hell experience. 
It's an experience which happens in meditation, or also out of meditation, usually in meditation, where we experience something of um, a physical nature, which is very quite frightening and uh, has a sort of an. It's usually concerned with getting, killing this body in some manner or form or hurting it badly. And because all of us have been around so many times, all of us have already had hell-like consciousness. These are consciousness states. So we get back in the mind to something like that. And the Buddha said, it's essential to go through with that in order to realize the danger we're in constantly to get back into such states. That's the next step on this path, seeing the danger. The hell experience needs to be totally worked through. In other words, not to run away from it, not to quickly open one's eyes when it immediately disappears, of course, or get up and walk out or anything like that, but just to stay with it and let it happen. And having done that, coming out at the other side, the fear is gone. And we can see from it that we are in constant danger to have a, a level of consciousness which is comparable to the word hell. We know of those types of consciousness in war, in aggression, in torture. We have all sorts of examples of hell consciousness in this realm. We don't have to think that hell's down there somewhere, and heaven up there, it's all in the mind. And we need to go through with it. Now maybe, if it does happen, and it doesn't have to happen, but if it does, and it's one step on the way, called fear, if it does happen, and one can't go through with it the first time, one opens one's eyes and lets it go by, it will arise again. Once one has to go through with it. It's, the Buddha said, it's extremely useful. We may have already have had one like that. And having completely let go of it, gone through with it and let go of it, it brings the insight that the human existence is dangerous because of the fact that we can always be through our own doing, be faced with situations which are very hurtful to us and very fearful and extremely unpleasant. The only way we can be safe from that, you know, as kids we used to play safe, you have to be on a certain spot before somebody touches you. If you get to that certain spot to be safe, then this can't happen anymore. And that spot is called stream entry. And one of the meditation masters in Thailand used to say, he's now dead, that if we don't use this human life to get to stream entry, we've wasted a good human life. That's a safe spot. It isn't enlightenment yet, but it's safe. We don't go below 
a human consciousness anymore. A human consciousness which has its problems, but it certainly does no longer have the danger which is inherent in a lower consciousness as a human one. And this danger is clearly seen when we go through this fear experience. Now, if we don't get the fear experience, the danger has to be clearly seen anyway. And we may be able to use past experiences to see that danger. When we didn't act in the best interest of ourselves and others, what were the resultants? How did we feel? What happened? Anything that can bring up the understanding that the danger exists for a human being to go into a lower consciousness. Now, danger is not meant that we're going to get run over by a car. It's just killing the body. Or that we're going to have a terminal disease. I think I said this already. Life is a terminal disease. And uh, there's just no way out of that one. So, that's not meant by the danger. The danger is our consciousness state. What kind of state are we in? And because of that, it's so important to realize, and I'm referring to that because of a question that was um, asked, to realize that the substitution of the negative states of mind do, does not mean suppression. You can only substitute that of which you're fully aware. So we substitute anything that takes us to a lower consciousness with that which brings us to a higher consciousness, or at least keeps us on the equilibrium. Suppression means that we don't know, don't want to know, don't acknowledge. That we can't substitute. What we don't acknowledge is there, we can't substitute with something else. So, this is one of our very beneficial results of meditation, whether we get really concentrated or not, that we learn the substitution of the thought to the breath. Now, I've mentioned this several times, because it is so important in our daily life when we can substitute that which leads us to lower consciousness with that which leads us to higher consciousness. All of us know what's awful in our mind and what's beneficial. We don't need to even ask because we know how we feel. How we feel when it happens. So we have this um, fear situation which may arise quite mildly or quite strongly. And naturally, it is the fear of the ego that it's going to be annihilated. And it is, of course, based on a wrong premise, because the ego doesn't even exist. That's why it can't be annihilated. But it thinks it exists. And as long as it thinks it exists, it exists for us. As long as we think in a certain way, that's what really exists for us. So, while it is an illusion, for us it's a reality. Ego is. And this ego is very angry if it gets any kind of knock. And the bigger and fatter it is, 
the more knocks it gets because it hits on the sides everywhere because it's so big and fat and it gets all sorts of knocks. So the more we can do about it to make it a little slimmer and a little thinner so that it doesn't get into conflict with so many other egos, the easier our life is. And this should never be a, um, an exercise of um, compulsion in our mind. We compel ourselves now to be altruistic instead of egotistic. That doesn't work. What it needs to be is an exercise of insight. Only that works. Nothing else does. Com compulsion just isn't uh, favorable. In fact, it usually produces the opposite. It's as if you had a balloon which you press in at one side because you don't like that it's so round so it bulges out on the other. It just doesn't um, have the benefit that we would like it to expect from it. If we have gone through the fear aspect and have realized the danger that we are in all the time, our practice becomes um, stronger. From this, the next thing that arises is urgency, some vega. It's an often used word in, in the Buddhist uh, discourses we can see that we've got to do something. And the urgency that arises is to get to stream entry, to that safe spot, where we are not enlightened by any means, but at least we can't fall into the uh, lower realms of consciousness again. And this urgency then, of course, makes our practice also more productive because we see quite clearly that that is a priority. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to sit on the pillow 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours a day. If we have that opportunity, wonderful, and if our knees can manage, it's great. <laughs> but that doesn't what, isn't what it means. Practice means that we don't forget the words of the Buddha how they apply to our own reactions, that we don't forget to examine ourselves whether the reactions are actually becoming purer and also again and again using introspection, meditative investigation into that what makes us a human being to find more and more the entry into understanding why this personality cult which we have is an illusion. That's practice. You can do that at your desk. You can do that confronted with another person who's getting angry. You can do that any time at all. You can do that when you're giving service to others. There's no time limit on it. Naturally, meditation has to be part of it, but that's not all of it. Meditation is a skillful means. And while it's very helpful and wonderful to have 
some time in one's life when one can go on a long retreat and really use the time for meditation and contemplation. Daily life does not have any aspect which prohibits that. On the contrary, daily life is our testing ground. This is the, the practice. Here is where we learn how to do it. And out there is where we do it. And that's where we actually play the match. Here is where we have the training to then know how to play that match out there. So none of us uh, need to think that special conditions are needed. And as I already told you, and you undoubtedly remember, Dukkha is anyway our best teacher, so you're never without a teacher. You always have a teacher right next to you. So there is no lack of opportunity. So here, when we come to that point of urgency, then it starts to be automatic. Our investigation and introspection becomes automatic. We actually look at things in the light of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and callousness or emptiness of core, of substance. And that does not need a, a mind uh, jolt. It comes automatically. If the mind is that way geared, mindfulness becomes much, much easier and so there's clear comprehension because the mind's gotten used to it. We are habitually um, habit-prone with our mind content. So if we practice, then when that urgency comes up, this is a part of the way we then react. We look at what is happening and see it in the light of a universal context. And we have then also a facility to recognize the dukkha in others so that compassion becomes rather natural instead of an acquired quality. First it has to be an acquired quality, but in the end it does become natural because dukkha is so prevalent everywhere, part of the one of the three characteristics, that it can be seen quite clearly. And this urgency is like maybe the starter motor. And once the motor has been started, it keeps running. But we have to go through those other steps to get there. These are in detailed explanation in various parts of the Buddhist uh, descriptions which are so common to people that we could almost say they're general. The uh, fear aspect is not that general, but the understanding of danger has to be, and so the um, urgency of practice. Enough for this morning. I'd like to ask some questions. Well, Barbara, who is sitting in front of me, has kindly offered already to transcribe all these tapes. 
which will take several months, and then it will take another several months for me to edit them, because when I read them, I can see that I have repeated myself innumerably, and also have used wrong grammar, so which you don't hear when I'm talking, but when it's written down, it looks <laughs> so it takes me another three, four to five months to correct that and then it takes another six months for the publisher to get it out to the public so in about a year and a half these tapes should appear in the form of a book but you can get the tapes, the copies of the tapes yes, within next month I'm going to put out an order form tomorrow for you, for anyone who wants to order tapes. And then you just have to listen to the innumerable repetitions and the wrong grammar, and uh, because you see the spoken word and the written word are not the same. So it takes months. But um, eventually, it's important to have the book, particularly for people who have not, you know, attended courses and never will, and therefore it has a wider uh, audience. But for those of you who have attended a course, the cassettes, the tapes, are invaluable. And um, they are more useful to the people who have attended the course. But many times, people who have not attended courses have also had benefits just from the tapes. So I'll put out the order form tomorrow. Yes? If the Janic Path is available to practitioners of other faiths, we don't have to get caught but they, if they get caught uh, they would get caught in the fact that they think they've arrived at the end yeah. that's where they would get caught No, not the fifth and eighth. Okay. Five, six, seven. Yeah, they can get get caught there. They get caught because uh, they think they've done everything, and also because of the fact that um, there may be no searching for that, for the inside, because of the fact they thought they'd done it. However, from my reading of the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages, which I find fascinating, um, I can see that those who have done what I consider the jhanas, they don't call it that naturally, they call it prayer, but they give the prayer also different steps, um, that a great deal of insight did arise, a great deal of insight of non-self. Yeah, that's fear and danger. Yeah. I mean, we can actually um, find the exact equivalence in the Christian mystics and in the Buddhist paths. And uh, it's uh, very interesting. It's, it's fascinating. And I think that uh, probably we will find a more of a revival also in this uh, Christian path, hopefully. Nobody's invited me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have a question about just a practical 
Yes, I can <laughs> fully identify with that. <laughs> I, I would do the latter, but <laughs> let's, uh, I mean, I find this traffic absolutely impossible, <laughs> but uh, let's just say fear, okay, in any situation. Um, examine it. What am I afraid of? And then when you get the answer, let's say the first answer is I'm afraid of the traffic in L.A., right? Okay, but that's not enough of an answer, okay, because there's so many people there and they're all driving and why aren't they afraid? They're afraid of the dark, maybe, but they're not afraid of the traffic in L.A. So it's not an absolute answer. It's not a universal answer. It's a very personal one. And personal ones never reach to absolute truth. So you have to find something more absolute, more universal. <coughs> and so then you say, okay, I'm afraid of the traffic in L.A. Why am I afraid of the traffic in L.A.? Because it's too busy. Okay. Why am I afraid of its busyness? Because it is life-threatening. Okay. Why am I afraid of life-threatening? Because I have the craving to be. And once you've come to that, you may find that some of that fear dissolves because you've looked it into its face and you've got an absolute answer. You're not going to get rid of the craving to be at that time, but you may be able to accept that craving to be and its inherent fears as just part of existence and not become overwhelmed by the fear. Is that clear? Yeah, that's, that's real clear. But then, do I make myself drive and, and realize at the same time that my fear is a being? Well, you may be able to do this questioning at home before you start out driving and then already feel much less fear. Yes, always question it. You will always come down to the, the bottom line, which is, I'm afraid of annihilation. But you also can realize at the same time, okay, at this point, I'm afraid of driving there. But this annihilation can happen any time. Uh, a, a brick can fall off the roof of the house and I'm gone. But I'm not afraid to go past this house. So what you need to do is inquire into the fear before you set out on that fearful aspect of whatever it may be, and see that it always boils down to the same thing, the fear of annihilation. And as long as we have that fear of annihilation, we are never free. We don't have freedom. Because the freedom is impaired by that fear. We only try to do the things which do not arouse that fear. Now, I'm not particularly advocating that it's very healthy to drive in Los Angeles, <laughs> but what I'm advocating is that it's very healthy for our well-being to have less and less fear of annihilation because we recognize and realize the fact that survival is a lost cause. None of us are going to make it. That's a guarantee. However, even if the body doesn't make it, which is guaranteed, the mind does make it. And whether that is so desirable or not is another inquiry. So, we, we, if when we get to the point of understanding that life as we know it, this existence, is always dangerous, then the particular fears which we have, which may arise in aeroplanes or wherever there is a fear of dying, may dissolve. So I'm advocating 
not doing it in spite of fear, but inquiring into the fear, seeing it lessened because of that, and then doing it. That would be my answer, okay? Yes. Say we are being annihilated, say we're dying in some way. <coughs> I mean, at that point we must we have work to do, I would think. You know, is there... After we're dead, you mean? No, when we're dying. Oh, when we're dying. Yes, yes. You mean if we have unfinished work, work yet, or no, what? Do we, are we think, should we think compassionate thoughts, or, or whatever, I mean, if we deal with that death, our death? At the time of our own death, what should we think? Well, <laughs> it's uh, unfortunately uh, for one who has not become <coughs> completely, a mind that's completely trained, we have very little choice, unfortunately very little choice um, the Buddha explained this in a quite an interesting way he explained this in this manner he talked about rebirth at the time and he said that our last mind moment is actually the one that directs where we're going in the future uh, it's like an arrow shot off which has a certain direction. It doesn't mean that now all our past karma is the, uh, lost, but it means that the last mind moment at death is a very important one because it gives a direction. And he compared this last mind moment with a herd of cows which have been um, locked into a barn. And... Uh, he very, very often used agricultural similes because he lived in an agricultural society. There was no industrial society at all. It was just strictly agricultural. And he said that now the barn door is opened, then if there is one cow which is nearest the door, it will run out first. If there isn't one that's nearest the door, then the one that's a habitual leader of the herd will run out first. If there is not one that's the habitual leader and not one that's near the door, then they're all going to try to get out at the same time and it's going to be a big mess. Now, if the one nearest the door is the kind of thought that is with us at that time, it's nearest the door of death, which is the reason why and not only in Buddhism, but also, as I believe in Catholicism, at the time of death, uh, chanting or praying is being done so that the sense of hearing, which is still existent, can take in some of um, higher uh, words that can bring a thought process which helps one to have a good thought at the end. Now, if, that is, if there is no such thing as a last thought, then the habitual one the habitual one is if we're habitually angry we're going to be angry at the time of death if we're habitually loving and compassionate we're going to be loving and compassionate um, and oh, I forgot one cow the strongest one uh, if there is no habitual leader then the strongest cow is going to try to get out first now that would be a thought process which is in our mind 
because it had had a great strong impact on our lives something which was really strong and if it was something good it was wise of us to keep it but if it was something awful it would be foolish to keep it we should get rid of it and that would be at the end and then if none of these three are in are there then the thoughts are in a confusion and there'll be confusion so we don't have that much choice other than practicing now it's too late when we're already dying we've got to do it now and if we do it now we have a choice we have the choice of whatever we want to think yes Concentrating in the meditation, the fear, mm-hmm. letting go of our head, mm-hmm. mind, mm-hmm. and the way to come to active is to inquire into another. Yes, yes. That's the way to get yes. through the fear. That's right. I know there's a lot of fear around me, and I can't, most of the time, I can't put my fingers on, you know. Mm. Yes, yes, that's the right way to do it, yes, yes. And contemplate anatta not as a as an aspect non-self, but contemplate within you all the different aspects of yourself which none of them proclaim me. So don't just say, oh, well, anatta must be right, the Buddha said so. That doesn't help, or what is anatta? In fact, we cannot contemplate something which doesn't exist. We cannot contemplate anatta, non-self. It doesn't exist. How can we contemplate something that doesn't exist? We can only contemplate that which exists, which are sense contacts, feeling, perception, and mental formation, and body, the five aggregates, and then look into that, see if there's anything else, and then look into those five or whatever else we may have found and see whether any of them is called me or whether any of them belong to me so we can only contemplate that what is and that's the way to do it but that's correct that's the way to get rid of fear yes 